Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, and Indian. I've had conversations about life with people of every walk, and as I frame the South Asian experience, I seek out the stories of people and their purpose, and what they tell me over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Welcome to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar. On this week's episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Mitra Kalita and Parijat Deshpande. Stay tuned. Okay, so this is no surprise, but there's a staggering amount of media content available to us all. Helping to shape and frame this is Mitra Kalita, a South Asian American who grew up in New York, Puerto Rico, and New Jersey. She's an accomplished journalist and author, a media executive, and an agent of change. She's also the senior vice president overseeing digital news and programming at CNN. I caught up with her, and we started by talking about the abundance of choices and how to navigate relationship development during COVID. As a digital content curator, what has the COVID era been like? My impression is, is that it's, it's perhaps been harder to develop meaningful relationships because of the dizzying bevy of content and our newfound amount of time that we have. Is there actually any truth to that? So I think if... It- you know, there's this saying, um, make a friend before you need a friend. And I think that uh, for those of us who've been steeped in communities, whether those communities are our identities, our professions, our neighborhoods, hopefully our neighborhoods, um, COVID actually was a big test of what we had developed in terms of networks and relationships before COVID. Um, And I can answer your question in two ways. One is, the external as um, a media executive, and then um, the internal kind of on on my own uh, family and my own community. Um, Externally, I think when it comes to relationship, one thing that at CNN we really leaned into was just people know CNN. People know us. We're in your living rooms. There's an intimacy with which you turn on the television, right? Um, and And I think we leaned into that because people were looking for answers that are literally life or death. And so for me, for my teams, what I kept saying was the pivot we need to make, you know, people talk about service journalism and public journalism and solutions journalism as though somehow helping people make decisions about their lives is separate from journalism. And I've always maintained that that is the best journalism. So I really tried to say, look, all of us arrive to work with such purpose every day. We need to tweak it ever so slightly so that we're not just telling you what has happened, but we're actually arming you to make decisions. And sometimes telling people what we don't know is as important as giving them the information that we do. And COVID, as you might imagine... I mean, you know this as a doctor, you know, the medical publishing has been turned on its head and the information that we're getting might not have been published last year, but because we're in such uncertain times, we kind of want to get out what we know. And so I said, as long as we let people know, you know, the intent of how we're coming to them, the context around this, I really do feel like the purity of a relationship can be maintained. Mm externally, uh, rather internally, kind of how did my um, own navigating of this, if you will, go? It's been hard, you know, and and it's been hard because I have 
thankfully a bit of a separation between my work and home life. I mean, they certainly blur together on my cell phone and my laptop, but right. You know, when I come home on a Friday night after a really long week of, and as you might imagine, over the last four years, there've been a lot of really long weeks. I find my family and my neighbors to be such anchors, right? Mm -hmm. And I am so grateful that I have a group that doesn't care that I work at CNN. They don't, I don't even think they care what I do. They just really embrace and love me and love my family and love my children. And um, they don't love my cooking, but they're better at that. (laughs) I am. So, you know, and, and what's been hard is that there isn't necessarily that separation, right? So um, the anchors we have, uh, we almost needed to seek out to your point of uh, relationship building and maintaining, right? Because they're not showing up on a Friday night, there's no space that we can kind of inhabit together. Um, So we had to create that. Does that mean going to a park? Does that mean hanging out in our yard? And, and as you know, over the last few months, the guidance around that also has shifted a bit on, you know, absolutely. Um, And then for work, uh, you know, I think that's just still, it's still in progress on how do I create some healthy balance here? Because as you know, you can start at 6.30 a.m. and it's 6.30 p.m. and there's still a whole lot more to do and there isn't a I have to get home for you know in some ways my kids and their schedules were really anchors for my schedule right almost yeah the cadence of the day the cadence of your life is you know shifted and and now we have this these new spaces to fill but it's it's heartening to hear about the the anchors and you know in some ways having that feel of what was important to you before COVID, um, hopefully still is staying uh, important to people and sounds like that's the case for you. Those anchors for you particularly, did your upbringing perhaps or your your background as a South Asian, as a New Yorker, did that help you develop an interest in sort of a career pathway into journalism, into curating content? Sure, that's a good question. Um, So I think that my family, um, I mean, I think a lot of Indian families say this, and I'm going to say the same, which is my family in some ways was an atypical Indian family. And in other ways, it was because everyone's family is, of course, they're unique. And the typical parts um, were very close and in each other's business. And so the sense of information uh, being a way we communicate with each other as opposed to direct communication about our feelings and our hopes and dreams, that was not happening in my house, right? Right. (laughs) Indirect communication over, you know, whether that's gossip, can you believe what that person's daughter, you know, is insert kind of judgmental statement um, there. And, and, you know, the, the kind of talking about things or around things as our way of dealing with each other. Right. And so I do think I uh, developed early on a fascination with, relationship with um, knowing information before other people might know. I'm really interested in processes. So I'm, you know, I'm the type of person who'll go to the theater and I love what I'm seeing on stage, but I, as much, I'm intrigued by how did they put this together? What was the process? like? What's it like backstage? Um, And I do think there's something about um, coming out of a country like India where um, the process is as important as the outcome, right? You're waiting in line and it's, it's hard to get things done. And when you turn the water on, will there be 
water coming out of the tap. So I guess, yes, by osmosis, I think it, it sort of set a backdrop for asking the questions and having curiosity about the world that is at the root of journalism. I also think that my parents um, were atypical, but again, this is somewhat typical immigrant in that my house was really a landing spot for so many strangers. And so mm. we would have visiting artists and government uh, officials and people going through cancer treatment who would come to the United States. And, and so our house was just this center of activity. Yeah. In a way that I think is common for immigrant households, but in a way that I really... While um, as a teenager, you're kind of resentful of like sharing your bathroom with three other people, there was always activity around. And there's something about that that I liken to journalism now, which is like every morning I wake up and I have no idea what my day is going to be like. Right. And right. that is what I love about what we do. Right. And there is um, there's so much kind of inner, if you picture like the hubbub of my house of like people circling around each other, yeah. that's kind of what I think of as like a newsroom is like with people, journalists, ideas. Um, yeah. Yeah. A swirl of, of lots of activity. And, and I, I really appreciate how you said that there's a process to this, almost a rhythm um, to it as well. And if you think about that from specifically the South Asian lens, I think a lot of us can certainly relate to, you know, strangers and visitors and sharing bathrooms exactly as you meant, meant it. But is that pace um, of a personal journey important in, ref in reflecting or narrating the story effectively and meaning does rapid or transient movement or change, even trauma, um, even the sort of social mobility of that, of that trauma, does that change the typical route of what your memory is of it and the storytelling aspect of it sometimes? I, absolutely. I think we become, it's a little bit of uh, the rose colored glasses, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so the nostalgia I have for that home and activity erases my mother in the kitchen having to cook for 10 more people and being yeah. resentful of what that represents and her own agency, right? And it erases, um, you know, kind of not really forming relationships with like our own. I mean, I, we did, but with our own family unit of five, like there was always people around, which means that it tends to take on a more performative nature of relationship versus, sure. uh, you know, uh, fighting with each other. We would not we would <laughs> fight, but I could tell my mom was angry while she was yeah. with 10 more people. Right. And so, and, and of course that affects how we communicate in our own marriages, in our work relationships. Um, sure. And so I, I think there is, um, I don't know if you were getting at nostalgia with the question, but I think it does shape how we look at our past. Um, I think in some ways my coverage of immigration as a journalist is probably driven by asking people questions that I couldn't ask my parents directly. And so much of our coverage of immigration, um, I think this is where you are going, um, is, you know, they wanted greater opportunity and they wanted a better future for their children. And so they arrived in America. And um, I've interviewed hundreds of immigrants in my career, and that's never actually the story. It's yeah. usually uh, a woman who had to cook 10 extra meals and was sick of it and she just wanted freedom, right? And Or it might be someone who wanted to actually marry somebody else and they couldn't. And yeah. 
the only way they could start something new was by leaving it all behind. And so I, I am fascinated by what you're describing of um, kind of like, what's the real deal here? You know? Yeah. And it's, it's a combination of nostalgia. It's the backstory, but it still also is mirrored by your perception of that pace and your perception of what that may have actually been as an, as an outcome for you. I think um, those indirect messages are probably just as important as the direct messages that are there and probably a lot more frequently remembered, right? I mean, and, and in some ways, I think you're, you're absolutely right that we as, as products of that, and, and I'm certainly in the same boat, um, we certainly, if we're curious, we'll go back and we'll ask the second question of what was that like to cook that 10th meal at that time. Um, and hopefully that'll be reflected in our storytelling of it as well, not just the, the transient bus stop uh, feel of what that was like, and perhaps the fun of that memory in, in, in some ways as well. But for those who've been um, you know, faced with trauma or a lot of, of movement and um, instability, that can probably take on a different spirit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Mitra Kalita. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit with Mitra about what does it feel like to be a South Asian. Stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. We're here with uh, Mitra Kalita. Um, I actually am always so curious about one thing. I know that this has happened to me and probably many others, and um, the experience is probably not unique to being uh, an Indian or a South Asian, but I know that when I've gone onto a public transportation vehicle, like a bus or here in the Bay Area, BART, and I'm in um, one of the cars and I see that there's another Indian person there, I'm immediately drawn to that particular um, person to say, hmm, there's another Indian person there. Um, so how, how does it actually, how, how would you describe feeling South Asian? Or how would you describe how you are South Asian? And, and if you do so, does it require some of the reminders of that where you see another person who's similar or you see another item that's similar, like a food piece or um, something, some experience to share? Can you talk about that a little bit? So, you know, I'm, I'm struck. Um, I smile because when we were kids, and we would see another Indian, whether we, you know, I lived um, in Long Island and then Puerto Rico. And if we would see another Indian, we would like run to our parents and be like, there's another Indian. And right. like, and, we, and then like my, my brother might joke to my mother, like, go say hi. And they actually might do it, you know? So right. um, I chuckle because there's, there, there's a recollection of that. If I did that now, uh, I live in Queens, just to give you perspective, right. like I, I would never get Your home. Your day would not end, right. <laughs> so, um, so I think there is a South Asian-ness piece of your question, though, which is growing up, I would see, I think they were other Indians, and there were symbols of Indianness that didn't necessarily feel mine. So uh, mm-hmm. Bollywood, or speaking Hindi, or um, just like the North Indian of the food, whether that's naan right. or, or, you know, butter chicken or, and those were all what was supposed to be Indian in America. Sure. And yet, because I'm from Assam, which is a Northeastern state and quite different in its traditions, although again, every Indian state thinks it's different and unique in its traditions. Absolutely. And they're right. They right. Are. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so I would feel like that's not really my Indian, but in the absence of a whole lot of other Indians, let's just yeah. go with it, right? That's right. And now in Queens, um, when I see, when I have the experience you're describing, chances are who I'm looking at, it is a much more South Asian experience than Indian because they're probably Bangladeshi. Yeah. Maybe Nepali, maybe Tibetan, you know, maybe Pakistani, but really the shift here in Queens um, you know, has been, there's been a Bangladeshi influx. And for me, because when I hear them speaking, it's so much more similar to Assamese. Yeah. Because um, when they're, you know, I understand what they're saying, I can converse a little bit, like there's a much more familiarity and technically they're not even from the same country that I'm, you know, quote unquote, sure. from, right? And so I guess that is in some ways what South Asian-ness represents, right? It's that, um, there's, I think we're looking for places of commonality with each other. Um, and it's not ironic that I find it with Bangladeshis because Assam is right there, right? Like right. it is, it is yeah. regionally, um, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, simpatico with the culture and so forth. So, um, so how does my Indianness uh, or South Asianness um, get defined? Um, that's a little harder because I, you know, I don't necessarily go over and say hi. I think that there's like a nod and then there's a little bit increasingly of a, almost like a safety in numbers. Like, oh, there's a few yeah. of us here now. Right? right. And I, I think that's nice. It's also a great way to raise your kids where you're, traditions, albeit tweaked for America, are very accessible, right? Yeah. And that's such an easier way to parent than what my parents must have gone through. So I do think that my South Asian identity definitely manifests itself in what am I passing on to my kids and what do they feel a part of? Yeah. Um, and then I do think the community nature of, of us is really important, right? And, and what do I mean by that? Um, it might be as simple as knowing that if I need someone to watch my kids like 15, 20 minutes out because something has just come up, it might mean that I have that kind of informal relationship with someone where I could just call them up and be like, can I just drop my kid there? And I'm yeah. not going to be like... It's like the safety net. It's a total safety net, right? Yeah. I don't have to give you money for pizza or any of that other yeah. stuff that parents do when they drop their kids off. I'm like, what right. is this, right? Yeah. So I, I really do think that, and you're, you're hearing me talk a lot about family, but for me, that really is um, a, a, a manifestation of identity. And then the other one is, I, I mentioned earlier about kind of the uncertainty with which you live life in India. And I think a lot about the immigrant and coming from a family of immigrants and how you relate that to changing workplaces and to times like COVID that are so uncertain. Yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that for the most part in newsrooms, I've been brought in to be the change agent, right? Yeah. And I think that is a part of my South Asian identity because we come from a country where a lot was uncertain. Our parents undertook a migration where on the other end was great uncertainty and then navigating daily life in America is, is still uncertain. 
And I think you kind of develop a confidence when things work out and work out, you know, we can define successes. Does that mean that there's food on the table or you've been able to buy a house or, you know, how do we define success? But I think that's another part of, um, that's a pretty integral part of the South Asian-ness to me. Yeah. Well, and and does that um, resonate for those who are, emigrating today, meaning are there elements of the immigration process for South Asians that are in some ways timeless? Those experiences transcend whether you came here in the 70s or whether you came here in the 2000s. Are there some parallels there that even today's immigrants are experiencing? Or is that is that shifted a little bit because there's probably a larger community, much more ubiquity to the messaging, and there isn't necessarily this uniqueness to seeing another South Asian on a bus someplace and running up to them and yelling, hey, uncle, how are you? That kind of thing. I think the two shifts right now are, to your point, there's just more of us here. And so it becomes less of... Uh, relationships born out of desperation, right? Yeah. Whereas in my parents' case, there were so few Assamese. And I still think I could tell you most of them in the country because we're, we're a small community relative to other groups. But um, you pretty much did know everyone. It was so tiny. Yeah. And so there wasn't necessarily the choice of who you were friends with in the way that now you see people... Um, kind of grouping off based on where they went to engineering college or right. um, what what village they're from or sure. what, uh, even family members. There's so many extended family um, clans, if you will, in the U.S. now. So people kind of um, define themselves that way. And then the second, which I think is really significant, is just information, right? So when my parents came here, um, there wasn't a way to Google how you do the next thing you're supposed to do. Right. So a lot of their friendships were born out of necessity of wiring money back home, right? Mm -hmm. And they would just all find each other, like find one person and give that person their money and give the bank account on the other end. And, you know, there's nothing like financial transactions like that to breed trust among people. So I think there was quick bonds formed out of um, literally navigating. Whereas now you can wire money from your computer or your phone your and it, phone, yeah. it's, an isol- it's, it's an isolation. So you don't need a relationship to, um, to help you get through that. And then I think of course, there's just like the information of, um, of being able to keep tabs on. I mean, again, when our parents came here, I had one aunt who had a phone for the first 15-ish years of my parents' time in America. Yeah. So my mom would go years without hearing her own mom's voice. Yep. And I think of now where, you know, I I often liken COVID to another migration for everyone on the planet because we don't know what's on the other side, right? Sure. Um, But we can FaceTime our relatives. We can get a sense of what they're going through. And so... I think it's, I actually do think it's significantly different to, um, to migrate now than it was back then. I almost feel like it's, um, even though there are, are more South Asians present and it feels like it's more ubiquitous, I think because of that idea that you can do so much with the press of a button or um, the connectivity that you have digitally, I wonder if the experience, believe it or not, is that much more lonely 
because you don't have to actually seek out those bonds or those relationships or problem solve as a group where that you have the ability to problem solve, you know, in person, you spent some time in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious to understand what your experience like there um, was as an Indian in sort of a predominantly brown environment. Yeah. So I think Indian kids um, grow up in America and, you know, not to be kind of cliche about it, but you're Indian at home and you're American at school. Yeah. And for us, Puerto Rico just threw all of that out the window and it became a third culture that we immersed ourselves in. And there were so many elements that are similar to India in that culture I'm describing of, you know, can I drop my kid off? Great. That's like so easy, right? It's a very informal culture. Sure. Um, People would just stop by and that had never happened when we lived in Long Island where a neighbor just like pops over and hangs out, right? Like just without, without kind of premeditating that action. And how Um, old were you when you were there? It was between the ages of eight and 12. Okay. Wow. So really, really just, you know, formative, formative years. Yeah. And great for learning a language. And that was another piece of it. So we uh, spoke Assamese at home, obviously English at school. In Puerto Rico, there was Spanish and English at school, Assamese at home, but my parents were also, uh, they had Spanish tutors because they wanted to at least learn the basics of the language. And so there was something about seeing my parents learning that, that I think Mm. was a big shift for me because because until then, as, as you might imagine as a kid, everything your parents do is wrong. They don't know, <laughs> they don't know what a bake sale is. They yeah. don't know how to dress for my spring concert. They just like, right. everything was, they just don't know because yeah. the, the Indianness defined my parents yeah. as completely, um, the Indianness defined my parents as completely different from everybody else. And there was something about them in Puerto Rico where I could see them trying to learn another culture and it was a welcoming culture, right? And and that's to your point about racially, it was brown and that's significant. And uh, people would invite us to their parties and God, they would throw huge parties, like a kid turned one and you're like, oh my God, this is bigger than a wedding or or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everything was very... um, big and extra and welcoming. And, um, and there was something about that that was, I had never until that point really been um, in a culture like that because I hadn't been raised yeah. in India. For my parents, it was like a return to where they came from in a pretty fundamental way. And I think that shifted. Um, I, I think that was really significant for me because so much of my work, both in journalism, my work, and then my own community is truly intersectional, right? It examines these overlapping areas. There's an acknowledgement that we can be many things at once. It doesn't just have to be that hyphen that, def- you know, that defines yeah. us. And, and if I hadn't gone through that at a formative age and seen my parents trying to be a part of something else that wasn't America. I, re- well, I mean, Puerto Rico's in America, but I mean, you know, the kind of white American right, the culture of it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I would have gravitated towards, you know, finding these overlapping spaces as much as I have. And I think they embracing 
this kind of intersection for them probably lent a, a great amount of uh, licensure in that way for, for you to actually take that and Zoom with it. Um, yeah. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Mitra Kalita. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about being a journalist and a South Asian American. Stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. All right. So we're back on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is Mitra Kalita. Um, Mitra, I have a question for you. Is it easier to be a South Asian journalist today than it was when you first started your career? So I think the answer is yes, because there's more of us, um, but there aren't enough. And I would say that uh, my career would be through the lens of a South Asian reporter starting out her career versus a South Asian executive yeah. of which there are certainly not enough, right? And so um, is it easier? Yes, because there are more networks and mentors and people to pull you up. Um, is it easy? No, yeah. right? And I think it's still a profession that for many immigrants is um, not familiar. It's not, you know, when we joke about our parents wanted us to be doctors or engineers, um, which you did very well at that. Uh, <laughs> We, we, uh, what I try to tell young South Asians is you, you have to hear it as what your parents want is stability, right? Yeah. It's not that they want you to be a doctor or engineer. What they want to you to prove is that this will be a career. This will pay you. There will be health insurance and there will right. be stability in your life. So let's reframe the conversation Yeah, so that doctors and engineers don't take all of our people. And let's try <laughs> to figure out how can we create stability in this profession for our um, community. Are there creative avenues or creative content that South Asians um, or South Asian Americans are either leading or driving that we all should really know about if we don't know already? Hmm. I do think media, I'm seeing um, greater interest. And I do think that's because a generation that's slightly older than me have been on television and sort of made it okay for that to happen. Right. So I think media. I am fascinated by what's happening in Hollywood with the telling of our stories. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, most recently Mindy Kaling and Never Have I Ever. Um, but, you know, we've even, even um, shows like Rami, who's um, Egyptian American, but there's a lot of overlap with the South Asian experience. I think this reality um, docu-series, um, Indian matchmaking and the reaction to sure. it has been fascinating. So I've been watching Hollywood with interest just because what you see is as a generation comes of age, they have agency to tell our stories in a way that our parents did not, right? right. So what you're doing here, what we're having a conversation um, you know, I would, I would dare say, you know, your father, your mother, my mother, my father probably would have had way more interesting conversations than you and I are right now. No offense to the conversation we're having, yeah. but their experience was so much richer and rooted in struggle and rooted in a, in a journey and that they didn't get to do a version of what you and I are doing right now is a damn shame, right? Well, and we're displaying it they would probably be having this in, um, you know, Marathi or Assamese <laughs> and 
Um, you know, those conversations would be rich, but they may be, you know, told in a different spin. Are we as a sort of community going to get to the point where the stories we are telling also tell of things like trauma or of displacement or of loss, just as equally as we are um, about the nuances of growing up here um, in, you know, straddling two cultures or, or whatnot, too? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a really good observation because much of what we're seeing right now is a certain lens. And it's been it's been criticized, right, as being um, elitist, casteist, um, you know, North Indian centric or South Indian centric. I mean, that's usually the Assamese people saying it's everyone. (laughs) So I, I agree. I think the answer is more storytelling and not to put the pressure of representing every nuance of South Asian America on one show or one director or one documentary series. Because I can tell you as someone who's often the only member of a community represented that's not white, right? Forget South Asian. There's no black people in the room. There's no Latino people in the room. As someone who's found herself in that position over and over, that is a massive burden for one person to bear and it's an impossible one, right? Right. So my hope is that um, we start to make space for some of these portrayals of our community that we seek out um, almost the what's, what's not represented and what's not told here. You know, I, I think, I do think with COVID we are going to have a period of looking back on this period of history and asking how it affected different people. I mean, the numbers bear this out, speaking of data, right? It has affected different people in disproportionate ways. And there are, there are millions of stories in that in and of itself. I would say what India is going through with COVID right now um, is millions of stories right now, right? In, in, our, in our extended family alone, there isn't a single house that has been unaffected at this point. Yeah. And I, you know, that's different from my experience in the U.S., even though I know a lot of people in the U.S., but it's, it's really different. So my hope is that we get to a place of more stories, not, not putting the burden on the one story to, to get into all of these other aspects. Well, I think anyone hearing any of your stories is going to be delighted always. Mitra, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll come back and join us soon. I'd be, I'd be so happy to. Thank you for having me. This is Karen David, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. As we know, mental health and hygiene are often not the first topic of conversation at South Asian social gatherings, and coupled with issues of parenting, fertility, pregnancy, and preterm birth, the journey can be challenging. Bharijad Deshpande is helping to make this journey easier. She's a clinically trained therapist and a best-selling author of the book Pregnancy Brain, a mind-body approach to stress management during a high-risk pregnancy. Her approach has served hundreds of women to manage and reclaim an essential safety and trust in themselves. I caught up with her this past spring, and I asked her about any realizations in parenting she had experienced while in quarantine. The biggest kind of realization is how much there is um, the personalization in parenting, that there's, there's no template at all. And not just like there's no guidelines of how to do it, but it's very much child-led, that you just cannot come in with your own preconceived notions and expect them to work for, and then maybe they do work for your first child, and then if you have a second child, they will prove you that that's not going to work anymore. <laughs> and just how 
flexible you have to be and how much they kind of show you where you need to check yourself mm. and go, okay, this is my stuff I'm bringing into this relationship or this is what I'm putting on you. But you as this new person on this earth, you're telling me you need something completely different. Um, yeah. And I think maybe that's where the expertise really comes from is learning how to listen to that little human that's in front of you telling you what they need, regardless of what you think they might need. You know, we have that in common and that we grew up in, um, you know, uh, South Asian or Indian, you know, families. And do you think our parents did that? Do you think that that was, that's something that a realization you've come to as a parent or, and do you think that's maybe harder or easier in South Asian families? What's different about us, perhaps, when, when you think about that reflectively? I think they tried. I think they had to. I think they had the challenge of navigating two completely different worlds where they grew up in an entirely different continent. We're not just talking about a generational difference, but an entirely different cultural uh, upbringing. And then to come here required them to expand the way that they thought they would parent, certainly. And then I think... In that, they probably had to learn uh, also how to navigate the cultural differences, how to, how to keep some of the things that were important to them, how to kind of go, all right, I guess we're letting that go. That, that might not be passed down anymore. And I think in that way, we have it a lot easier is we're not navigating the, the, um, the immigrant status of here. We grew up here. So there, there's a familiarity and there's, there's um, a connection between us and our children of knowing what it's like to be in school here, knowing what it's like to go to college here, knowing what it's like to socialize here, what it's like to maintain a different culture at home versus at, at school or outside the home. Yeah. Um, so I think it's different. I think it's different. I imagine that for them, it was a lot harder the, the cultural differences as opposed to the individual child's differences. I, I imagine that probably came secondary because sure. there was just so much more they had to navigate than I think we do in some ways. And maybe it's, you know, the difference between picking up on your kids' cues because, yeah. you know, we relate to that much easier for our own children. But do you think, our, do you think uh, parents of the previous generation and even, um, you know, even those before them when they were um, perhaps in, in South Asia, um, you know, is there, are there some common threads there? Even though they did have the straddle of the sort of two different cultures, um, I wonder if that made it easier or harder for them when it comes to how they coped with the stress of that or how they manifested um, the stress of that. that. Yeah, that's a good point because I think the, the flip side of it too is then we growing up here have more access to that individuality and that can, you can fall down a whole rabbit hole for that. Of, and, and just the information overload that parents at this time have that our parents did not have because of the internet and all these books and all this, you know, there's a lot more pressure in this time, I think, to go, am I doing it right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to before, I think they were maybe relying more on instinct, I imagine, of I, I, I'm quite sure this is what I'm going to do. I might not get it right, but I'm going to do it. And I think they just kind of did more. Whereas we, I think, think more before we do, which has... Certainly it's benefits, but also a lot of downside too. Well, I mean, does that make it, especially from a mental health standpoint or even um, being self-aware, um, does it make it harder to develop that trust in, say, the South Asian community? Um, com you know, comparatively, I mean, it's one thing to have the really sort of wealth of information that we have at our fingertips right now. And then thinking about, um, you know, let's say even 20 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, when that wasn't necessarily the case, um, is there a difference in how maybe those in the South Asian community, um, you know, trust both their own instincts or those of their family versus 
um, the rest of the kind of information around them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it's it certainly adds to the stress. I, I think our our generation who are raising children now are under far more pressure to, as I said, like get it right, quote unquote, right? Like, am I following the rules? Am I going to screw this kid up? Am I going to, am I doing the right thing? Um, there's just so many opportunities to go down a thought hole that I, I do believe we have lost the ability to kind of turn inwards and go, wait, what does my instinct tell me right now? And I think we see it as early as you know, pregnancy and newborn infancy when what we want to teach mothers is trust your gut. You know your child best. And, and I think it continues into through childhood and I imagine through the teenage years too, if there's just so, such um, a pull to go, but what should I do? What are you saying? What are my doctors saying? What are my experts saying? And, and it's great that we have that information, but I think we have kind of swung the pendulum a little too far the other way. Yeah. And, and there is a lot of wisdom in the cultures that we have been passed down with and the traditions that we have been passed down with. And there is a lot of wisdom in the new culture that we have been, uh, you know, introduced to in our life. Yeah. And if we can, it, ideally speaking, not at all saying that I do this perfectly in any way, but I think if we can trust our instincts, well, you, you probably do more than you think. I, I, <laughs> I was, I was reflecting, um, you know, with a, a parent once in the office and we were talking about almost the same thing, but the topic came up on, you know, trusting your gut and your instinct. And, and I remember saying these, the words came out of my mouth that, you know, parenting and your, your child rearing is not an app. Um, yeah. You, it really does have to come on um, instinct and like you said, taking culture. So, I mean, do you, when you're, um, you know, meeting and greeting, um, you know, others or, or helping in the in sort of counseling frame, what advice do you give, you know, for parents in, in that way, or even um, expecting moms in that way to sort of get away from the information and not necessarily treat the experience as, as the app experience? How do you, how do you help manage that? for? Both? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of it is actually I teach them how to listen to their bodies. We, our minds are loud and our thoughts are loud and they are convincing and there are so many thoughts all the time. And so it really is like going to the gym and learning how to lift weights the right way. Uh, it is such a body training of going, all right, I hear those thoughts. Thank you very much. What is my body saying? Because your body changes when you're on the right track and when you're doing something that doesn't feel right. That's just how human beings are. And if we can learn to listen to that, we train ourselves to turn there instead of here. And when we can do the earlier we can do that, then it, I think it follows us into parenthood. And then the cool thing is then we teach our children how to do that. And then we're teaching our children, okay, that's nice that so-and-so is saying this and so-and-so is saying that. What do you feel? And then they start trusting because as humans, we are inherently very good at trusting our bodies. And I think you probably see this very often as uh, you see it in terms of feeding, for example. Mm -hmm. Children know how much they need to eat. And we're sitting here going, eat more, it's not enough. <laughs> you know, I'm curious about how, how this spot right now for you, how did that evolve? Um, how did you get here? Yeah, it, it was quite a journey. I actually thought I was going to be an OBGYN, actually, for most of my life. <laughs> and uh, chemistry in freshman year of college beat that dream out of me. <laughs> Nope. Try again. Uh, it, you know, it, I, I ended up in the field of clinical psychology 
it was something that came very naturally to me. We're talking about instinct um, and, and just kind of that whole clash of what I think I want versus what is what actually comes easily to me. Clinical psychology came very easily to me. And, um, and so I pursued that. I still, I still, even when I went to graduate school, I wasn't sold on it. I said, you know what? I will go. I will, sure, I'll try it out, but I'm still not sold. Um, because there was always a part of me in the back of my head, whether I could verbalize it or not, that went, I need to be in women's health somehow. And, um, but you know, life takes you on a, on a path someplace. So I went into uh, clinical psychology through my graduate training. I became really interested in the application of the theories to the South Asian community and really how they don't apply to the South Asian community and how I had a moment. I remember in, um, in my practicum, I was sitting with a client and in my head, she was a South Asian woman. And I remember thinking, I have all these tools I've learned so far. Yeah. nothing's going to work with you because I know the backdrop uh, with which you're coming to me with. And that really planted the seed for uh, founding my Sahana, my, the nonprofit for mental health right. awareness and wellness awareness for the South Asian community specifically. And as I was building that nonprofit personally, I actually experienced um, significant challenges growing our family from infertility and pregnancy loss to a very high-risk pregnancy, months on bed rest, and then I delivered my son extremely preterm at 24 weeks and five days. And it was through that experience of being the patient, I went, there was a moment, I remember that day too, it was the summertime, I was wearing a green shirt, sitting in the sofa because I was on bed rest. Vivid, yeah. And uh, there was sun coming through the, the windows, and I remember thinking, I am very anxious, and I can feel that, I can feel it's affecting my pregnancy, it's affecting my body. Um, I am in the field of clinical psychology. I know what to do and nothing I'm doing is working. And I know that if I go to see a colleague of mine and I go see a therapist, which I had no qualms of doing, but if I go there, I know what they're going to say to me. And now as the patient, I realize that's not what I need. Mm. And so it was this really eye-opening experience of having the the foundation with the traditional education and then going to life university going, all right, here's what's missing. And so uh, two days before my son was born, I, I made a commitment to him. I was in the hospital. Uh, I was on hospital bed rest by that point. I was connected to all the monitors for days. It was a quiet moment. And I remember putting my hand on my tiny belly. It was not, not even 25 weeks yet. And I went, if we survive this and we get to go home and be a family, I need to change my career because nobody is serving these women. Everybody's telling them there's something wrong with them for being anxious. How can we expect a mother who's worried, uh, who could lose her child to feel anything but fear? It makes no sense to me. And so after he was born, he had a lengthy NICU stay. And then we were at home and we were actually on quarantine for two and a half years. So this is actually not our first rodeo. And, um, and it was after we came out of that and I kind of started to think again, the clouds started parting again and I could emerge back into the world that I went, okay, it's time to make good on that, on that deal that you survived this. I survived this. We're home now. You're doing great. Now it's time to go and help uh, more women know how to support their bodies to help them stay pregnant. So I dove into the research and there's just so much there about the impact of 
stress and pregnancy outcomes and pregnancy complications and prematurity. And it blew my mind. Uh, and I knew there was something here. And that's where I started my practice, um, no longer as a psychotherapist, no longer as a counselor, but really somebody teaching women how to reestablish balance in their nervous system so that they can reestablish balance in their endocrine system and their immune system to support a healthy pregnancy. And it's just, it's been wild. It's been so cool. Thinking a little bit about what uh, your uh, admirers and, and really, you know, those who have really benefited from your care, they, they're struck um, a lot by your positivity and, you know, really your energy to helping people to understand this. I'm curious, is this more difficult, both in the South Asian community, where this can sometimes be a really challenging subject to tackle, but on top of that, even the real nature of isolation or, um, you know, really mental health and hygiene, um, your positivity and your, and your really great um, outlook um, is combating a lot of forces, whether they're cultural or even, you know, the, the forces that are fueling um, depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, if you had asked me this six months ago, I probably would have answered this differently. Huh. Uh, I think what I have learned along the way is that what's, what resonates with people is when you disarm them by showing them how what they're feeling makes sense. Yeah. I think we come at, and this is one of the big reasons why I left the field to begin with is because we are, it's a, it's tr the medical model of find what's wrong and fix it. And it was when I was pregnant that I went, but I don't think there's anything wrong with me. I don't understand why I would feel any different right now when you, my doctors are telling me every week you might lose your child. I just, I, it didn't compute to me. And so it truly came from uh, getting really comfortable with putting it out there saying, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. Let's talk about all the ways that your anxiety symptoms or the cluster of sensations that you're calling depression, why do they make sense? How in the context of everything that you've been through, does it absolutely make 100% perfect sense that you're feeling this right now? And I think when I started getting really comfortable with saying it that way, I think that's what's resonating with people because now they don't feel broken. I'm not somebody that's here to fix them. I don't believe there's anything that needs to be fixed because I don't think they're broken. Well, and in our community, I think, um, you know, it's, it's so challenging not only to deal with um, issues that, you know, we're not familiar with, or for that matter, um, they're not necessarily um, brought out into the open so much. Yep. You certainly interface with a lot of families who are dealing with infertility issues. Yep. You know, so when it comes to the Indian or South Asian community, how is that different for maybe someone of that background when you're necessarily helping them? Yeah, it's um, my, I have actually found that from moving from traditional psychotherapy to doing this work in the women's health field, there has been even more requirement of confidentiality, mm -hmm. that um, people are very hesitant to join if they know other people are going to be there because they don't, it's, it's now no longer just, I don't want people to know about my mental health. I don't want them to know about my physical health, my reproductive health, totally understandably, but, but there's a tremendous, um, kind of cloud of secrecy on yeah. it. And, and,
And that makes me sad because I have lived it and I know how isolating that is when you feel like you are the only one when one in eight couples face infertility. And it's likely more than that. And so many, I mean, the rate of pregnancy complications is increasing dramatically over the years. One in 10 families have a preterm delivery. I think that's getting to, that's going to increase significantly over the next few years. I mean, it's so it's, it's not as isolating as we feel. And yet when we are in this culture and in this community, uh, we don't know that. Yeah. No, and, and I and I think that's that's really interesting in the sense that, you know, prior to having the information and the resources that are so readily available, a lot of the support for many women came from their really sort of tight um, circles around them, mostly yeah. family. Yeah. And um, you know, as as we do have resources as amazing as that that we can find around us, and and again, information at our fingertips. Is there a kind of, um, you know, sweet but sad uh, reality there that we have all that information available to us and yet we, we don't necessarily have our, um, you know, close friends and family so, you know, readily available for us to deal with that? How, totally. Particularly in, in the South Asian community, but how, how do we wrestle with that better um, as we kind of go forward? Yeah. You know, I think this is another place where we're going to see a shift in our community is is realizing that when say couples are going through this we can do it alone or we can turn to our community and part some of the members of our community might be supportive they might be in our family they might be friends they might be other people we don't know um or we look outside the community and we start bringing in more of the acceptance or the information from outside the community and we start shifting it from the inside. And I think a lot of that is going to come from more and more South Asians talking about this openly and sharing. And it doesn't have to be on a public forum. It can just be with your friends. Because I, I can't tell you how often I've heard people saying, I thought I was the only one who had a miscarriage. I said it to one person and she's like, oh yeah, and this one and that one and all of our, fr- we've all had miscarriages. And it blows everybody away. And so even if you tell one person, you know that there is actually a chain and there's a little kind of subgroup within your group that probably understands. And you find comfort in, you know, knowing that there are others out there who have been yeah. through the same thing. And yeah that empathy that you're talking about is, is, is quite real and it's, and it's palpable. Yeah. Maybe, uh, you know, a, an experience for you in your book that you wrote, um, which really sort of was, um, was and is a a great success, the pregnancy brain. Um, I'm curious, did you find that it brought you closer to others who were either experiencing um, some similarities? And did you find that, you know, by writing that book, um, that there were others perhaps in, um, you know, others who were experts in, in the field that you wouldn't have expected to connect with because of your, your engagement with the book. How, how did that experience um, feel for you, finding others who were now sort of either, you know, in experts in, in the field and connecting with them? Did that bring your sort of work and, and your, um, you know, thinking about the experience to a different level in some way? It did. It was, it was wild. It's being amazing. Um, you know, the first wave of feedback was from women in the community. Uh, the, and the message that I get most frequently is I feel like you wrote this for me because you're, somebody finally gets it. And that was just so huge for me because that was really the intention of the book is what would I have wanted to read when I was 
you know, hooked up to magnesium on hospital bed rest, totally isolated from the world, not knowing if my child was going to survive, what would I have wanted to read? And that, that, that is this book, um, part narrative, part client stories, and part research to show you're not crazy, you're not broken, and there's things you can do to help your pregnancy. And what happened from there, which I did not expect, is patients, you know, women going to their OBs going, you have to read this book, your patients need this book. And then getting messages from that saying, I sent this to my OBGYN. She's ordered a case for her office, uh, which then traveled into the maternal fetal medicine world. And now, you know, MFMs around the country are going, we're keeping this book for our patients um, because it's a need that we don't know how to fill. And this is really hitting home for our patients. And they're coming then to the appointments calmer and more confident and making clearer decisions. And they're not um, this ball of anxiety, not able to take in the information I'm trying to give them. Even if it's good information, they're not able to hear it. And now they read your book and they know how to do that. In, in our communities, really sort of like becoming less insular is very hard, right? Yeah. Especially when it comes to mental health and, and hygiene. What um, pieces of advice then do you have for um, folks in, in the South Asian community, whether it's here, abroad, anywhere, um, about what they can do to better address uh, their own mental health needs, not just, you know, from the clinical side, but even just from a self, um, you know, awareness side. Yeah. You know, I think to ask yourself, do I want to continue living this way? Because that's really the choice that we're making is, uh, either I can do something about it, and I, you don't have to know what that is. It's just you can either do something about it to make it different, or you stay the way that it is. And I think that is where we get stuck, is we get so caught up in, I don't want other people to know. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want, you know, we like the, that insular experience that you're talking about. Uh, and that's when we're focusing on what to do. But one step before that is really checking in and asking yourself, is this how I want to live? Is this how I want to experience my life? Is this how I want to be as a parent? Is this what I want for my child? And if the answer is no, then the answer is right in front of you, is you can still stay within the South Asian community. I think there's been a huge change from when I entered the field to, to now, where there are so many more South Asian providers and practitioners. And when we talk about mental health, we talk about overall health. It's not just in your head. So a therapist might not be the answer for you. That's okay. Find somebody else. But it has to start with, are you ready to do something different? Mm -hmm. And if you're not, then we own that and we accept that and we say, okay, then I'm not going to expect any other different results either. And when I'm ready for different results, that starts with me getting ready to do something different. And from there, I think it's so important to remember that there's nothing wrong with you. Just because the people around you may not understand you, just because people around you may not understand what's happening to you, does not mean you're broken. It does not mean there's something wrong with you. We've just got to dig a little deeper to figure out what you need. Just the same way if you're having headaches all the time and the standard approaches aren't working to, to mitigate them, we dig deeper. We get curious. That's yeah. the same thing here. We get curious. We don't judge. We just get curious. What is my body telling me that I need right now? And then we go from there. And I think when we approach it from that perspective, there's, we lose that judgment that's tied into it, you know, the stigma that's tied to it when we really just look at how do I want to live my life? Is this the level of health that I want or do I want better? And I think it removes some of that stigma and it kind of allows for us to be uh, explorative, really just explore our options 
and and see what what the answers are to get us to where we want to be and how we want to live the rest of our lives. Tell me one thing. So, if in in the same explorative way, is this your is this your purpose? Have you come to land on you know your journey, as you said, as you know, sort of got to this point? But um, as you d- keep discovering this and think about the change. Um, that you're making either for yourself or for the people you interact with. Um, has, have you discovered your purpose? Is, is that exploration still continuing or, um, you know, have you sort of landed on the spot? I think I've, I think I've made it. Yeah. I think the, the exploration for me now is how to present that to the world. And that's, I think, a continuous experiment. But um, I really feel like this is why I was put on this earth to do this work with pregnant women and women trying to conceive and preemie moms. I, I think this is why I'm here. Well, it's an experiment that we're certainly enjoying and very appreciative and grateful for. But Jeff, it's been great to connect and talk and Thank you. back and join us uh, sometime soon. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Ruckus Avenue Radio.